This is episode number 384 with Dr. Dan Siegel. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Dr. Dan Siegel received his medical degree from Harvard University and completed his postgraduate medical education at UCLA with training in pediatrics and child, adolescent and adult psychiatry. He served as a National Institute of Mental Health Research Fellow at UCLA, studying family interactions with an emphasis on how attachment experiences influence emotions, behavior, autobiographical memory and narrative. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He is also an award-winning educator. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatry Association and the recipient of several honorary fellowships. He is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, an educational organization which offers online learning and in-person seminars that focus on how the development of Mindsight in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. His psychotherapy practice includes children, adolescents, adults, couples, and families. He serves as a medical director of the Lifespan Learning Institute and on the advisory board of the Blue School in New York City, which has built its curriculum around his mindset approach, which is pretty awesome. That is a pretty impressive bio if I do say so myself. And in today's incredible episode, we chat about his story and how he became a world leading voice in the neuroscience of integration, communication, and parenting. What is the difference between the brain and the mind? And why is this difference so crucial for our happiness and development? Why cultivating an integrative brain is so essential for our health, relationships, and well being? We also talk about how integrated our individual brains are, which is really cool. He also gives us some epic tools and tips backed by science to encourage crystal clear communication with the most important people in your life. I absolutely love these techniques so much. We also dive into the different types of attachment and how they influence every aspect of our lives right through to adulthood, plus what to do if you've got attachment issues, how to transform your childhood trauma into the ultimate tool for better relationships and parenting, the dangers of shame and how it can build throughout our lives if we avoid doing the inner work, how to apply the upstairs and downstairs brain theory to radically improve your connection with your children, plus so much more. And for everything that Dan and I chat about in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 384. And now without further ado, let's bring on this incredibly intelligent man, Dr. Dan Siegel. 
Welcome, Dan. I'm so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? For breakfast this morning, I had kale, two eggs, some tahini, some chia seeds in, I think it was a combination of oat milk and almond milk. Oh, yum. That sounds delicious. And I love tahini. My husband jokes with me all the time because he has to hide it because I love it so much. Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) Since it doesn't need to be refrigerated, you can hide it almost anywhere. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, I am so excited to have you here. I first discovered you through your books, The Whole Brain Child and Parenting from the Inside Out. That's where I first heard about you. One of my girlfriends said, have you read this book called The Whole Brain Child? And I was like, no, tell me about this book. And so She was telling me about the whole upstairs, downstairs brain. And yeah, I think it's incredible what you've done there. But can you tell us how you got into this work? How did this all unfold for you? Well, boy, there's a a lot to say about that. I would just begin by saying that I was trained as a scientist, but then I became a physician. And then in that journey, a really learned that in medicine, people weren't really focusing on the mind, on the inner mental life of feelings and the meaning of things and stuff like that. So I became very disillusioned, left school for a while, came back. And when I went into pediatrics to take care of kids, I was just fascinated with the mind of the children and the parents and everything. So I switched over to psychiatry. And there, you know, I found it really wonderful to work with the patients. But I was disappointed in my field because everything was being reduced to the brain. And while I love the brain and I learned a lot about the brain, the brain isn't the whole thing and it's not the same as the mind. But this is not something that had been clarified in the fields of mental health, such as you know psychology, where I was trained to be a researcher, or psychiatry, where I was you know working in the medical world. So that basically started a journey a long time ago in about 1989 to try to figure out what is the connection among our relationships, our mind, and our brain. How do those three things go together? And that gave birth to a field called interpersonal neurobiology, which was a kind of a way of bringing all the sciences together into one framework. And as my wife said when I was getting disillusioned and I wanted to switch fields, she said, instead of switching fields again, why don't you try to change the field instead of changing fields? So I said, oh, that's really interesting. I could get behind that and see if, could we define the mind for the field of mental health? And then once that sort of began to all unfold, then not only did it affect the field of mental health, but it affected parenting, uh, it affected education, the broader field of understanding consciousness, and well-being in general in our whole planet. So it's been an amazing journey all of these years, and it's exciting to see you can translate science across the different sciences so people can, you know, do parenting with more efficacy, you know, do it more effectively, and also have more fun doing it because they know what's the science behind what I'm doing. So that's basically the story in a nutshell. So the brain and the mind are not the same thing. No, they're actually not the same thing. You know, Hippocrates 2,500 years ago said they were the same thing, the grandfather of modern medicine. And then the grandfather of modern psychology said that, William James, in 1890, 
So it has been said for a long time, mind is what brain does. And when I heard that in my own training, since I was trained in neuroscience in medical school, in fact, my neuroscience teacher, David Hubel, got the Nobel Prize for studying all sorts of things about the developing brain. But I just felt like to make the mind, our emotions, our meanings in life, the deep ways we connect with each other, equivalent to brain firing, it just felt like a simplification that also could be destructive if you really believed it were true, because then you do what my professors of medicine did, which was just ignore the importance of subjective experience, the feeling of life itself. Mm. So we all know that the mind is so powerful. The brain is so powerful. They are incredibly powerful and we can use them to really enhance our life or they can become very detrimental and destroy and cause a lot of unhappiness and stress. So how can we use our mind to awaken to our true power? Yeah, well... That's a fantastic question, Listen, I think the thing to think about is if you say, well, okay, what is this mind that could have this power? What is the mind really? And you can say, well, you know, I know the mind is your feelings and your thoughts and stuff like that, but what are those things? When you talk about power or mental health, well-being, thriving, all those wonderful terms, what do we really mean by them? So for me, back in the early 90s, what I noticed was that some people could have a kind of relationship with their own inner mental life where they were thriving and some people weren't thriving. And they began to fall into two categories, which kind of was strange to see, but one was people could be consumed by chaos or they could be imprisoned by rigidity. And this was really interesting that no matter what a person's diagnosis was that the clinic, you know, when I was working at the university would send to me, whatever their diagnosis was, they either had chaos, rigidity, or both. And I could go through all the examples of all the different people, but this was really strange to me. And I said, well, that's really a weird pattern. What's wrong with me? I said to myself, you know, that I'm reducing everything to chaos or rigidity. And I would say this to my teachers, have you noticed that? And they go, Well, I've never thought of it that way, but yeah, I guess so. I guess you could divide it that way. So then I went on a search to try to find any branch of science that said, hey, when something is not going well, it either becomes rigid or it becomes chaotic. And I found lots of examples, but no explanations in different sciences like biology, for example, or even psychology, but they didn't explain why. And then I found it in mathematics. And in the math, the math book, in this very room I'm in right now, as we're all now, you know, hunkering down during the pandemic, in this very room, I remember reading this book that said, if a complex system is not optimizing what's called self-organization, then it goes either to chaos or rigidity. And I went, oh my God. And then I read on and it said, when it optimizes self-organization, it has all these qualities that are described in math terms. But if you put them into English, It's flexible, adaptive. The math term coherent means resilient over time. It's energized and it's stable. So that's an arrangement because I'm an acronym addict, excuse me, but that spells the word faces, flexible F, 
A is adaptive, C is coherent, E is energized, S is stable. And this is when what's called a complex system is optimizing something called self-organization. So it's a long story, but the bottom line of the story is I think the mind is in part besides subjective experience and consciousness, which we can talk about in information processing, which it does. A fourth facet of mind is the embodied and relational process that is self-organizing. It's a self-organizing emergent process. So it's regulating energy and information flow that's both within your body, including your brain and your head. So we're not leaving the brain out, but it's a part of the whole body and it's a part of relationships. So the mind is not constrained. It's not bound by your skull. It's not even bound by your skin. It's happening right now between you and me. It's happening now among all your listeners who are listening to us. And it happens in how we relate, not just other people, but how we relate to the planet, how we relate to nature. So then you can say, well, okay, that's fine. You've come up with a definition of the mind. Big deal. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that you can say, what's a healthy mind? And the next statement you can say is a healthy mind is a mind that optimizes self-organization within and between. You go, well, how do you do that? It's really simple. The way you lead to that faces flow is by differentiating elements of the system and then linking them. And, you know, the mathematicians I, were, I was talking to, they don't have a name for that, that linkage of differentiated parts. So parts can be different. And in their uniqueness, in their individuality, when you bring them together as a whole, when you join them, that's the linkage, they don't lose their individuality. So it's not like blending. It's a kind of synergy where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That's what creates the faces flow. And I just said to the mathematicians I was working with, I said, well, I'm, I got to name it somehow because I'm teaching my patients about this. I'm going to call it integration. And so integration, we're going to define very, very specifically as a system where you're differentiating and linking, and that creates this faces flow. And then we're going to say this, integration is health, period. So whether that's happening in your brain or in your skin encased body, so within you, or it's happening in a romantic relationship. I do a lot of couples therapy. We can look at that. It happens in a family with parents with their children. And that's what the whole brain child and parenting from the inside or out are all about. You know, and you can take this notion from the 90s, the proposal about it, and then over the last, whatever that is now, almost 30 years, I can't believe that I just said that, but over the last 30 years, there's a ton of science to support that scientific inference from early in the 90s. And everything that's come out has shown that if you have a psychiatric disorder, you have impaired integration in your brain. And interventions that create well-being, like mindfulness interventions, cultivate integration, literally changes in the structure of your brain. And you can then look at a study that came out in 2015 that shows when you look at every measure of well-being, one brain factor predicts every measure of well-being they could find, and that's how integrated your brain is. It's called how interconnected your connectome is. We can get into the details if you want, but the bottom line is it's how different areas are linked. And what you do with your mind, which is basically your focus of attention inside of you and your focus of attention in a relationship like what we're doing right now, 
if you ask me a question, Melissa, I can show you an integrative response and a non-integrative response, and we could do an example of how that feels. You want to try that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so ask me something. What did you do today? Ooh. Oh, man. <clears throat> okay, so you see, I didn't respond. <laughs> no. <laughs> so no linkage, right? How did that feel? I'm just, yeah, waiting. Like, I'm like, is something going to happen? I'm just like in anticipation. <laughs> yeah, okay. So so it wasn't that bad. I could give you an even worse example, but I didn't want to make it so bad. Now, ask me something else again, and I'll give you, well, we'll do the same question. What did you do today? Thanks for that question, Melissa. That's really interesting because today was really fascinating. My daughter finished graduate school, so we got all these presents together to really celebrate this incredible work she did in environmental science because we're so proud that she's working to protect the environment. Now, how'd that feel? Much better. So good. Yeah, good, right? Because we differentiated. You could ask your question. I could really hear your specific question. So you're differentiating all the information we could have been sharing. You said, what'd you do this morning? I took it in and then I'm honoring what you said. So I'm honoring the differences. And now my response is really based on what you said, but I don't become you. I resonate with you and then link back to you through communication that is relevant to what you asked about. We call it contingent communication. And if you look at parent-child relationships, they're all about contingent communication. A child sends a signal, you receive the signal. You don't make that child just what you want them to be. You receive them as they are. That's the differentiation. But you don't become them. You resonate with them and then you return a signal back to show you've received them. And what the child feels, or any of us in that situation, is what a patient of mine said a long time ago, which is just the most elegant way of talking about what we're talking about, is she said she felt felt. To have the feeling that someone feels you, right? Even before understanding or you feel seen, you feel felt. And that's what we're talking about. And that's ultimately what every human being wants and child is to feel seen and heard. So you talk about how this can heal our relationships. So can you give some more examples of how this would translate in a romantic relationship and then with our kids as well? Put this into practice for us. Well, yeah, which one do you want to do first? Let's do a romantic relationship. Like say a romantic relationship that communication is not very good. I call it practicing crystal clear communication, CCC. A lot of people don't practice CCC. There's a lot of friction and tension in the relationship. They haven't communicated. They go weeks or months without actually saying how they really feel. And there's tension in their relationship. So where do we start? Okay. So let's talk about crystal clear communication, right? So the CCC. So the idea there is uh, let's see, is your husband there? Because we can invite him to do this with us or I could pretend to be your romantic partner and we could do it. I want to just have an example. Is he around? He's not around. He's not around. I usually get rid of him when I'm podcasting. <laughs> oh, true differentiation. Okay, so so let's do this. So if, if you and I were in a relationship, let's just, so, so people can sense this. There's one body called Melissa. There's one body called Dan, right? So we bring these bodies into the world. You know, sperm and egg get together. They form the fetus. The fetus is born to a baby. The baby grows up in an adolescent. And now we're in our adulthood and we have this romantic relationship. You have a body. I have a body, right? 
Now, notice nowhere did I say anything like your mind is only in your body or yourself is only in your body. I didn't say that on purpose, even though people will talk like that. They'll say, oh, yeah, Melissa's in that body. I didn't say that. But there is a body for sure, and there's a body here. Okay, so now we get attracted to each other. We work it out on dating, and we have a, a romantic relationship we've started. And something happens where I'll just I'll own this. Something happens, and I start getting really internally preoccupied with you know, what's going on with me at work or wondering, do I really want to stay in a relationship with you or doubting my ability to meet your needs sexually or financially or all sorts of ways I start to fret about my own adequacy or whatever it is, but I'm not going to share any of this with you, but it's happening inside. So now we're going to use the word self and just say at a minimum, this multi-layered thing called self has an inner aspect to it and a relational aspect to it. It's got a lot more than that, but let's just start with that. So my inner aspect is filled with doubt. I'm not good enough for you financially, good enough for you sexually. I'm not going to be able to make you happy. I know you want to get married. I just think you're going to be miserable than me. And the last girlfriend I had, she bailed on me because she started having an affair with somebody. So I think it's going to happen to you. You're an attractive person. So someone's going to find you. And oh my God. So I have all this inner doubt going on. And I have a voice inside of me that you could say it's my inner mind. And so I start withdrawing. So from our framework of integration, I start excessively differentiating from you and not linking to you. So I've now compromised the two elements needed for a healthy romantic relationship to be in harmony and be healthy and all that stuff. So you start feeling the rigidity of it. And maybe you start getting really angry about it. Like, am I having an affair, you know, because your last boyfriend, you know, had an affair on you or whatever. And you see, you see, I'm, I look kind of secretive because I'm by myself. You have no idea what's going on inside of me, but you have your own history of worries. So I get rigid. You get chaotic. The whole thing starts to blow up. And pretty soon we break up, right? That was not fun. It didn't have to go. Yeah, yeah. So that would be an example, starting with the negative of... Even if it was good and has potential to be good, unless we move through the barriers at that moment to integration, this relationship is not going to work. No, not at all. Now, I could take us to the healing part of it if you want. Yeah, let's talk about the healing part because that scenario I feel like I hear very often, you know, similar sorts of things like that with people, with my friends, with the people I work with, that internal battle that one person has that they then create these stories in their own mind and they go off on these tangents and before they know it, they've broken up with the person in their mind before it's even actualized. So what can we do instead? Okay. So the first thing, if you're listening to Melissa and and to me and you're hearing this, you go, oh my God, this sounds so familiar. First thing to just point out the foundation is there's chaos and rigidity in this relationship between Dan and Melissa. So so right away, the minute you sense chaos and rigidity, you know there's a blockage to integration. So that's the first thing to know. Something doesn't feel right here. And so far, and I do a lot of couples therapy, I haven't had a single couple where it didn't present itself as chaos and rigidity. It's just amazing how this is basically it. 
And so then you go, okay, let's work with the couple. So now it could happen where we just work with each other or we get a therapist to help us, whichever way it's going to happen. But the, the pathway is the same. Sometimes you need help. Sometimes you can just help each other. So you say to me, Dan, you know, I'm feeling like something's not quite right. Is there a good time when you're not busy with work, when I'll have some time when you and I can sit down and talk about how our relationship is going? And I go, well, not right now. I'm busy doing this or that. How about tonight? You go, okay, fine. Let's set some time. Fine. So then we have, we have dinner and you say, is this a good time to talk about it? And I go, yes. So this is your crystal clear communication, really, where you say, I'm just getting a feeling like I keep on exploding in irritation with you in very chaotic ways. So I remember hearing Melissa and Dan talk about in that podcast, you know, chaos is a barren integration. So I don't know what's not being differentiated when it's not being linked. So can we take time now and let's each differentiate so we can maybe see what's going on in link? And I say, okay, that's fine. Because you may be feeling chaos, but I feel very rigid. I don't know why, but when I'm with you, I feel shut down. I feel kind of unattracted and I feel just stuck. Even though I know I'm attracted to you, I just don't feel it. I don't, I just can't get myself to be sexual. I can't do these things. I'm just, just rigidly shut down. And you may be going, oh yeah, because I'm not attractive to you. And I go, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not that you're not attractive. I just feel shut down. I don't know why. So you go, okay, well, let's differentiate. You go, okay, would you like to go first? And then you say, yes, you know, I've been, you can tell me if you want. What, what have you been feeling? I've been feeling like you're really distant and you're not sharing things with me. And I feel we're not connected. And yeah, there's just a big void between us at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there more you'd like to share about that? Yeah. It just makes me feel sad and disappointed and uncomfortable. And I want our relationship to flow. And I know how great it can be, but I just feel like you aren't expressing what's really going on for you internally. And I feel like you're pushing me away as a result. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I want to respond, but is there anything more you want to respond with now? So now I'm really giving you lots of space to differentiate your own reality, your own experience without interrupting you, without saying, yes, but, or let me explain that. None of that. I'm just giving you lots of room. This is the differentiation part of the clear communication. Yeah. So go ahead. Any more you'd like to share at this moment? I feel complete. Okay, great. And then you can ask me. Is there anything you would like to share? Yeah, I mean, this is really hard for me to do this, to share this, because I really love you and I think you deserve to have somebody who's good enough for you, but I've just been consumed with doubt. And I know that probably is going to be a turnoff for you. So I'm even nervous sharing it with you because I know you like to be attracted to men who are strong. So for me to say, I feel like I won't be able to make you happy or won't be able to satisfy you in bed or satisfy you in terms of the money we can make or I can make. But I'm having a lot of doubts that this is going to last and I think you're going to have an affair. I don't think you are having an affair, but I think you will because I'll be so inadequate and won't be able to be the, the man you want me to be. Or no, be the man you deserve to have. That's probably more accurate. Thank you for sharing. Is there anything else you want to share? 
well, I don't know how to get around this because I'm afraid to tell you this. And now that I told you this, and I know this is the differentiation part, but now I feel like I'm going to have severed the linkage because my deepest fear, in fact, is that if I'm open and honest with you about who I actually am and my vulnerabilities and what I'm really feeling, you're just going to take off and say, what a bozo, which in Australian, uh, it means, you know, what, what a clown. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to share? Well, if this is the last time we're together because you're going to leave me, I just love you and I'm sorry if I disappointed you. Thank you for sharing all of that. So that was the differentiation, right? So now, (laughs) now is the hard part, right? Because now we want to share a compassionate understanding with the other one. So I might say to you something like, you know, I can really understand how you've experienced me pulling away and not sharing and kind of being rigidly shut down, which I have been. And I really understand how that would be a turnoff to you and it would make us feel like it's not a very harmonious relationship. So I can see why that would make you get irritated and blow up sometimes. I really understand that. Thank you. I feel heard and seen. Beautiful. And that for me is really important in a relationship to feel heard and to feel seen. And thank you for expressing. And I just want you to know that I'm not going anywhere and I love you. And thank you for being so open and honest and vulnerable and sharing your fears with me because it actually helps me understand what's been going on for you. Oh, I'm so relieved. Because I really, really feared if I would open up, you'd run. So I didn't open up. And then I got closer, more closed down and closed down and closed down. And so this is like, uh, I can't believe this is happening. This is just so beautiful. I agree. Nice. You know, then we would talk about it and there would be a shift so that we would come up with an agreement on how, if you're feeling I'm pulling away, you could bring it up in a non-threatening way to me, non-attacking way to me, that if I feel like I'm shutting down, I could reach out to you and really we could find a way where any of this chaos or rigidity was a signal to give us permission that we'd agree upon ahead of time to actually sit down and have a talk like this. Yeah. This is really, really amazing communication tips and skills. And my husband and I do something like this already where we have, we call it a love bubble. And so one of us might say, can we have a love bubble tonight? And that's basically what happens in the love bubble is what we just kind of went through. But it's a very safe container, a bubble where we both express and there's no talking over each other. And we do that exact same thing. You let the other person talk and then until they have done their full stop, you then say, is there anything else you'd like to share? And we do this already and it's been a game changer for us in our marriage. It really has. And these little relationship tools can really help and support you because when we get up into our head and we think, oh, the grass is greener over there. This is so hard. Why is this so hard? And I call that voice the inner mean girl, where the inner mean girl's like, oh, this shouldn't be so hard. Why is this relationship so hard? Oh gosh, it's like my other relationship and I just need to go and find a new one and it will be all rainbows and butterflies. But no, it's like the grass is greener where you water it. And the more love and attention 
that you pour into your relationship and have these tools that you can pull on, the better your relationships are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And you know, what's what's exciting about it from a practical point of view is any couple can learn to do this. Now there are, and this is you know the book Parenting from the Inside Out, there are histories we each have so that some of us may have had secure attachments early on and some of us may not. And then no matter what you had when you were a kid, you can work towards security so you can engage in a conversation like this. But let's say this Dan in this example, you know, had, well, you could go through the three forms of insecure attachment. But if I had, you know, what's called an avoidant attachment where my primary caregiver wasn't very emotionally attuned to me, I might not have much awareness of the feelings I was having either in my body or the emotions I might be experiencing. So I need a little more work developing that part of me. If I had an ambivalent attachment, I might feel really, really uncertain about us and not certain about me. And and I bring a lot more doubt than this person, Dan, in this example showed. Or if I had disorganized attachment, where I was terrified of my parents without any repair, then I would have what's called a fragmentation of my mind. I might start dissociating. So I would be so cut off from a feeling of vulnerability. I might say, I don't know what you're talking about, Melissa. I'm not cut off at all. I'm not, I'm fine, even though I'm not. So it'd be like a a split part of me would be cut off and, and fearful. I wasn't enough for you. But the bravado guy be out in front just saying, no, I don't know what you're talking about you know, what's wrong with you, you know, this kind of thing. So, so, and that obviously doesn't go very well (laughs) communicating. So depending on a person's history, it's important to remember, we not only have temperament that shapes our personality, we also have attachment. And these are all workable things. So it's not like it's the end of the story, but it's a part of the story that needs to be directly addressed. So if I get terrified when you get upset, because I've had disorganized attachment, I got to make sure I'm not projecting onto you my terror of my parents who scared me to death. When you're not really scared of me to death, but the more I react to you as if you are, the more intense a reaction you may give me and the more I may flee. So the whole thing becomes this downward spiral that you can break and turn into an upward spiral of improvement if you recognize what the issues are. How do we work out what our attachment out of the three, how do we work out which one we have? You know, Parenting from the inside out can help you do it in the book itself. There's questions. The most concise summary I've ever written about this question you're asking, which is such an important one, is in a book called Brainstorm, which is for adolescents to read, but I put a part in attachment. And it's all just a few pages, which says, if you've had such and such happen to you, it's an avoidant attachment. And then as you move through adolescence to adulthood, it turns into a dismissing one. And this is what you need to do to move from dismissing the, you know, relationships are unimportant, as that's what the dismissing means, to finding a way to realize relationships are the most important thing in our lives. And a person, 20% of the population in the United States, at least, I don't know what it is in Australia, but in the United States, is one out of five has this history of avoiding attachment with the primary caregiver, a dismissing attachment as an adult. They don't really remember their childhood, but they keep on insisting relationships back then or even now don't matter, right? So they run around the world because it was so painful. The relationships they had were so empty. 
the longing to belong was so unfulfilled that they just shut it off and they come up with this kind of narrative, oh, relationships don't matter when they do, even for that person. So so the, the pathway is to get in touch with those feelings. For the ambivalent attachment, it turns out into what's called preoccupied. So if this guy, Dan, and this exercise we just did, if he had preoccupied, it would be, you know, where I would, I would say, yeah, I feel I'm being inadequate with you because I was, my brother was liked more by my mother. And she always used to say, I was really not a good son. My brother was the great son. And, you know, he played baseball and I played soccer, but that didn't matter or football, you know, and, blah, blah, blah. and I go on and on. Pretty soon I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about my mom. And so I'm preoccupied with my attachment. I need to do my own individual therapy, most likely. And then in disorganized attachment, it would be this example I've mentioned of dissociation, the fragmentation of my mind, which unfortunately is not rare, sadly, somewhere between 15 to sometimes 35%. And a lot of people can have frightening experiences that don't get resolved in childhood by the behavior of the caregiver. So it creates a biological paradox because part of you says, go toward your attachment figure to be protected from harm but it's your caregiver who's scaring you. So another part of your brain says, get away from the source of terror. So you can't go toward and away from the same person, your caregiver, when you have just one body. So you fragment. And so that would be a different kind of experience you would have in a romance with someone with a history of disorganized attachment. They're all workable. So it doesn't mean, oh my God, I've got to leave this person. Not at all. There's just some work to be done in some of the most beautiful relationships come from the healing that happens by acknowledging that you were dependent on a kid on parents who were not dependable. And, you know, as Leonard Cohen's beautiful song Anthem says, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. Beautiful. I'm just popping in to tell you about one of my favorite products that I love and use every single day. And that is my blue light blocking glasses by Blue Blocks. Nick and I love them so much that we collaborated with them to create the Nick and Melissa range, which are stunning and my absolute favorites. We honestly wear these every single day and night and take them with us when we travel and even when we go to friends' places for dinner. And if you've heard my episodes with Andy Mant and Jack Cruz on the harmful effects of blue light, you will know how detrimental blue light is for our health, hormones, eyes, and sleep, which is why I personally use them every single day. But they don't just do blue light blocking glasses. They also have awesome yellow and red light bulbs that you can install in your home, which have zero flicker, low EMF, and zero blue light. As you guys know, I'm currently pregnant and I recently learned that if I wake up in the night to feed my baby and turn on the blue lights, this will affect my milk production, the quality of my milk and the supply. So this is yet another reason why we need to get rid of all of the blue light in our home. Another one of my favorite products is their sleep mask, which blocks out all, and I mean all of the light, not like those cheap eye masks that you can get. I wear this every single night and I love it. And you can get any of their Epic products 15% off with the code MELISSA. 
Just head to blueblocks.com forward slash Melissa. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com forward slash Melissa and enter the code Melissa at the checkout and come and tell me on Instagram what you think of their products. Now let's get back to the conversation. So how do we make sure that we have healthy attachment style and how do we make sure that we're raising children with that as well? Yeah, well, I mean, the parenting from the inside out step is really, really important. That's what the research shows that to put to summarize an entire field, the field of research I'm trained in, attachment research in just two sentences There's no such thing as perfect parenting. There's really just showing up and being present. So we have a book, Tina Bryson and I, called uh, The Power of Showing Up. So that's a good one to start for the relational side of this. But for the historical side in your own childhood, Parenting from the Inside Out, which I wrote with Mary Hartzell, my daughter's preschool director, really helps you do that. And that's the second sentence that summarizes it all, which is, it isn't what happened to you that determines how you parent your children. It's how you've made sense of what happened to you. Because some people will say, oh, this is so ridiculous. Why should I read a book or hear a talk or have a conversation about what happened to me when I was a kid? Because I can't change it. So why are you having me talk about it? Like this kind of thing. So what I say is, I said, that's totally understandable. And the science shows the reason you want to take time to reflect on the past is not that you can change the past. You're absolutely right. Totally right. And making sense of your past is something you can do. And that, the science shows, makes all the difference. So we could realize that we've had an unhealthy attachment with our mother or our father, and then we make sense of it. And that is the sense that we make for ourselves is, well, they were doing the best that they could with the resources and the knowledge and the wisdom that they had at that time. Is that making sense of it? I think that's a very important part is to understand why your caregivers, which are your parents or others even, why they did what they did. For sure, that's a part of it. The other part is to think about it sort of in two sides to it. One is what did happen to you? The second is how did you adapt to what happened to you? And then the overarching thing from those are, how can I free myself up now, given what happened to me and how I adapted to it, to understand why my parents did what they did, understand how it affected me, really to go deeply into saying, yeah, you know, my parents made me feel inadequate as a little boy. So now I'm in a romantic relationship with Melissa. And so, of course, I feel inadequate when I'm in another attachment relationship, because romantic relationships at their best are filled with all the elements of attachment. Sometimes they're just sexual and you have sexual drive and sometimes they're just friendships and there's not an attachment, but attachment has all these qualities of turning to the other person as your soulmate, as a person you go to when you're distressed. You know, they're really a person who you feel becomes woven into who you are not just a roommate, right? So that's an attachment figure. And we do, and romantic partners can be attachment figures. So the point is that if you have leftover garbage from your attachment that hasn't been made sense of, it will definitely project itself 
leak itself, influence, shape, constrict, impair the integration of your romance now. That's for sure. So it's a win-win-win thing around. If you're raising children, it will, the research shows, it will make it very probable that you will have a child who is securely attached to you, which leads to their own resilience and well-being. If you've made sense of your life, no matter what happened to you, I've worked with people who have had some of the worst, worst trauma you can imagine in life. That's just who I happen to work with here in the city. And then they raise kids having done the therapy to make sense of what happened to them. And they are fabulous parents. I'm not going to say they're better parents because of what happened, but they are absolutely filled with post-traumatic growth. So they have such an appreciation for life such an exquisite sensitivity to the importance of relational respect and integrity that they bring this incredible gift to their parenting. Now, before the therapy, they would have appropriately said, I think I'm going to be a horrible parent. And in fact, if they hadn't done the work, the research shows they would have been. But because they can make sense and not just repeat what happened to them, and the reason I could say, yeah, they would have been, because the research also shows that if you had horrible stuff happen to you as a kid and you don't take time to make sense of it, it's in your what's called implicit memory. You will just perpetrate that on your own kid. So what you want to do is take the time to say, what did happen to me? How did I adapt to what happened to me? How can I now actually liberate myself from the prisons of the past to be the person I really want to be that my partner deserves, that my children deserve, and actually that I deserve? Because part of the emotion that makes this hard, you know, is the emotion of shame. So a lot of the insecure attachment patterns are associated with the emotion of shame, which is not like guilt where, oh, I did something wrong, let me correct my behavior. But shame is there's something defective in me. And no matter what I do, I can't change the fact that I'm a piece of garbage. So then I have to cover that up because it feels so helpless, so painful. And now if I'm in a romantic relationship, like let's say the one we were, we were doing the example of, if I'm filled with shame, when you start getting activated because I'm pulling back and being rigid and I get filled with the shame dynamic, right? I don't want to be aware of the fact I feel like a piece of garbage. So I have to cover it up with, you know, bravado, or I say, oh, everything's fine. I don't know what you're talking about. No, everything's all good. When in fact, the pain I need to go through, which really as my partner, you're not going to be able to heal. I have to do that in my own reflections and my own work with a therapist, because I'm going to go to such dark places that a therapist can be there with me. And it's really hard for a romantic partner to do that, even if that partner is a therapist. Yeah. It's really important to get that support. It's so powerful. I've done a lot of therapy on my own and then done some stuff with my husband as well. And it is so powerful. It really is. So don't feel even shame for seeking support as well. I think a lot of people do feel shame around that. And that is just not something you need to subscribe to. Getting support is actually really, really beneficial. So I love that. If I can build on that, Melissa, here's, here's a little thing that I tell people I work with that they tell me is really pivotal in them moving in a direction of healing the shame, which is this. Developmentally, for a child, when parents 
are not, let's say, a given parent, a father, mother, whoever, you know, when this parent is not doing what they need to do, and let's say I'm the kid and I go, hi, 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 and I'm ignored, or I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, get slapped, or that's the extreme, or I'm not attuned with that contingent communication we talked about. Then what happens over time, especially if there's anger associated with it, so I'm humiliated, it deepens in this feeling of, I have a longing to be seen and heard, like you talked about earlier. So now let's go into the child's experience. I have a longing to be seen and heard, which when I'm reflected to that way, validates who I am. I see myself in the response of my caregiver, my mother's face, my father's reactions. I see an authentic me in there resonating with me in this really integrative way. We're different. They're not becoming me, but we're linked. Now, when that doesn't happen, inside of me, I go, oh, something's not quite right. And can I make you the mom? Yeah. Okay. So if Melissa's my mom and something's not quite right, you don't see me, you're busy getting drunk or you're distracted or whatever it is, you may love me a lot, but you're busy with other things. I'm not getting the connection I need. So then after day, after week, after month, after month, this keeps on happening to me. I start going, you know, I have this longing to connect with my mom, Melissa, but it's not happening. So at some point, there's a kind of equation that you can think of, this is what I tell my patients, that goes like this. Am I not getting the love I need? Am I not being seen because there's something wrong with my mom? Or is there something wrong with me? I don't know any other choice. It's either something's wrong with me or something's wrong with my mom. And usually something's wrong with me comes first. It has to, because if I'm in an attack, if I'm dependent on my survival on you, my mom, and I try out that equation, oh, there's something wrong with my mom. She's an alcoholic, gets drunk every night. And even though I beg for her to read me a book or be with me, she's just drunk and scary and not there for me. That's going to be terrifying for me. I will go insane and I will lose my mind. Literally, my mind will fall apart if I think there's something wrong with you. So I can't even go that route, even though that's an option. I could, but I'd go insane. So instead of going insane, I go to shame and I go, oh, I see. I'm not having my needs met because my needs are not worthy of being met. In fact, I'm not worthy of being seen. In fact, I'm a piece of crap. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. There you go. Right. So now that shame feeling becomes this overarching tone of what I come to believe about myself. Now, that is so unbelievably painful, so filled with helplessness that I just shut it off from awareness, but it's there, like this this machinery beneath all my mental processes. So now I want to be, you know, a good student in reading, but I can't read. Okay, then I'll be in theater. Now I try to be in theater. And oh yeah, all, the applause is there. And now I think, yes, everyone sees me. So maybe I decide to be an actor or whatever I, I'm going to be. And now I get an Academy Award. And I still feel like a piece of garbage. So I need two Academy Awards or, I, or I'm in business and I get you know a billion dollars. I need another billion dollars because no matter what I do on the outside, I still feel like garbage on the inside. So I've got to accumulate stuff or accumulate fame or whatever I got to do. And all I'm doing is not doing anything for my pain. Just suppressing. 
suppressing, 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 because I thought if I got the first billion dollars, I'd actually feel good. I'm not happy, right? So this is where shame can organize an entire life. And in a romantic relationship, then you can see where if I start having the shame dynamic leak out into the romantic thing, let's say that was what was going on, it would be really hard for me to become as open as I was in that dialogue. I might do it, but I might just go, you really don't love me, do you? You really think I'm inadequate, don't you? Uh, I'm really no good. And you go, no, you're fine, you're fine. And after a while, if I say it enough to you, I'm no good, I'm no good, you're going to say, you know something, you probably are no good. I'm going on, <laughs> moving on. You know. So this shame has got to be working with my own therapy. You know, It's one thing to have it come out in a conversation, but it's not your responsibility as my romantic partner to heal me from the past. And at the same time, your love can be a part of the healing process. Exactly. That love and that support can really help someone heal. And it's our responsibility to do the work ourselves and not project that on our partner or anyone else. So I love that you mentioned that. You will have heard me say many times before that whatever you put on your skin gets absorbed straight into your bloodstream, which basically means your skin is eating or drinking any products that you put on it. This is why it's so important to make sure that you are nourishing your skin with clean products like Edible Beauty. But they don't just do skincare, which is awesome, because not only do you want to nourish your outside with their delicious products, You also want to nourish your insides with their amazing wellness products like their beauty teas, elixirs, and gut healing powders. My favorites are Golden Glow and The Sleeping Beauty. A mega bonus is Edible Beauty is environmentally conscious. Their sustainability ethos means the wild-crafted organic ingredients provide the highest level of purity, while their packaging is 100% recyclable. How great is that? Now, right now, you can get 25% off with the code MELISSA. All you have to do is head to ediblebeautyaustralia.com and type MELISSA at the checkout. Enjoy nourishing your temple. In the whole brain child, you talk about the upstairs and downstairs brain. Can you talk about that? I found that really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously in neuroscience, because part of the time I'm, you know, in academics, to divide a hundred billion neurons into two parts, like upstairs and downstairs, is obviously way too simple. And yet, it's actually pretty accurate and it's super useful. So one of my colleagues actually recently wrote me a note, are you still talking about that upstairs and downstairs? And I said, yeah, it's really useful. You know, And I understand when she puts a person in a brain scanner, it's more complicated than upstairs and downstairs. You know? So I want everyone to know, we'll talk about it. And when Tina and I wrote The Whole Brain Child, I was just finishing the second edition of what's now in the third edition of The Developing Mind. You know, And so we had to really say, we're putting this in for parents, upstairs and downstairs brain, because it's really useful. And I think we even say in the book, and it's more complicated than this. So just know that. But we can't, you can't go through 100 billion neurons. And, and besides, they work in networks. So here's the fundamental idea, is that as your kid is growing from birth on, the brain in your head, because you have a brain around your intestines and you have a brain around your heart. So we're talking about the third brain, really, but it's the only one that has language, so it calls itself 
the brain, but it should be really the third brain, if it were being humble about it. And this this collection of networks in of you know like a spider web like set of interconnected neurons, the basic cell of the brain, you know, it functions by energy flow patterns turning into into information, and the information in the lower parts of the brain, we're going to call that downstairs, is quite distinct or differentiated from the kind of information processed in the higher parts of the brain called the cortex, or let's call it the upstairs brain. So since everyone knows about, for the most part, a house with an upstairs and downstairs, we chose that metaphor of a house so that people could visually realize, because you don't usually see brains running around, you know, they could visualize, yeah, okay, there's an upstairs part and a down. I get it. There's an up and a down. Fine. So then once you say that, you say, well, you want to build the staircase of the mind to really connect awareness that's generally arising from the upstairs brain with the parts that are below it that for a child of the first develop the lower parts and then later on the higher parts develop into adolescence, right? So when you think about it that way, if a child, for example, is really, really upset, the response to threat with fighting, fleeing, freezing, or fainting even, are mediated, they're created, they're, they're run by the downstairs brain. And as a parent, if you understand that, that if your child is feeling threatened, a dog is barking really loudly and they're terrified and they're jumping on your lap, right? Then the way you connect to them is with hugging them. Not a lot of words which require their upstairs brain. At that moment of their fear, they're consumed by their downstairs brain's information, which is frightened, 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 right? So you hug them. And then as they begin to relax and the upstairs brain gets back online, then you can start talking about the dog, about the dog being on a chain and it didn't really threaten them because it couldn't get out of the chain, although some dogs can break through a chain. You know, there's all sorts of things you do, but first you connect to the part of the brain that's activated. And that's the whole point of saying where these sort of things are happening in the brain because you want to get with your own downstairs brain to tune into their downstairs brain same with the left and the right the right side is very nonverbal gestures timing and intensity response your facial expressions your tone of voice all these things that in the pandemic we're kind of losing when people feel disconnected from each other but that are just as important as the words you say are primarily from the right side of the brain, whereas the left side is all these words I'm saying right now. So you can look at the brain upstairs, downstairs, left and right. And ultimately what we're talking about is differentiating these areas and their functions and then linking them. So integration is what the whole brain child approach is all about. Mm, I love it. And we'll link to that book in the show notes because I think it's such an incredible resource for parents and parents to be. Speaking of books, let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Besides all of your books, let's presume they're already in the curriculum. What is one other book that you would choose? Wow. That's a really, really interesting question. Because it's so interesting you say that. I'm just finishing a book now where I'm, I'm writing about a person who's going through his adolescence and 
I might put this book in, but you're saying not my books. I would put Larry, Larry Steinberg's book, The Age of Opportunity. I think that's a fabulous, fabulous book. But I might sneak in a second book, too, by another colleague of mine, Barbara Natterson Horowitz. I'd put in a book called Wildhood, because you're talking about high school, right? So Wildhood is a fabulous, deep, engaging story about adolescence and non-human animals. Even lobsters have adolescence. And when you read it, you just get a perspective that we're not alone in going through the adolescent period. And if you combine those three books, Wildhood, The Age of Opportunity, and, and the Brainstorm book, which you mentioned earlier, you know, which I wrote for adolescents, those three together would be a great set to have in a library. Awesome. And we'll link to those in the show notes. So thank you for mentioning them. Absolutely. I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Rapid fire. Okay. Yes. I'll get my rapid fire ears on. What is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Wow. I would say do the wheel of awareness, which combines the three pillars of mind practice that show it integrates your brain, improves your immune function, reduces stress, optimizes cardiovascular function, reduces inflammation, and even optimizes the enzyme telomerase or slows the aging process all within, you know, that's the research based on three pillars, but the three pillars are found in this one practice called the wheel of awareness. So people can go to our website and do the wheel. And I would do, I do that every day and it makes the whole day a different kind of day. Yes. The wheel of awareness is so beautiful. I love it. And I'm going to link to it in the show notes and I highly recommend everyone do it because it's so beautiful. Great. Okay. Next question. What is one of the most important things that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Yeah. You know, I think I love the research on taking an awe walk, awe, A-W-E. Awe is this fabulous experience. Decker Keltner is a professor at UC Berkeley, a colleague and friend, and his work on awe is just awesome, you know? And when you do that, you realize the abundance that's all around us, even during a pandemic. And it very much relates to, I guess, what I would sneak in there, (laughs) keep on sneaking these extra ones in, is write in a gratitude journal, write three things you're grateful for every day. Beautiful. I love that. So powerful. That gratitude practice, that daily gratitude practice, it makes such a difference. It's so simple but it makes such a difference. Even doing it on your own three things in the morning and then doing it around the dinner table or on the way to school with your children, it's a really beautiful ritual to bring into your daily life and it just makes such a difference. Yeah. Okay, last one. What is one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? Mm. You know, I would say it's what we've been talking about is first of all, be kind and caring inside, inner compassion. And then what that does is it allows you to achieve a state of presence, this hub of the wheel of awareness, if you're doing the wheel practice. And when you drop into that presence, love naturally arises. I've done this, the wheel with over 50,000 people now, the first 10,000 I recorded. And what's amazing is in that hub of the wheel, when you do it, pure awareness, it's almost like three things are, are part of a tapestry of life. It's awareness interconnection, and love. And to bring more love in, you want to tap into that spaciousness inside of yourself. And then what people have found when they do the wheel 
is love just naturally starts arising in many relationships that they have, not just romantic relationships, but a whole, there's many kinds of love, ways of really caring for one another in this world. We have a fun word we use, we, you know, which is that you have a me in your body, but you also have a relational we, and you're an integrated self, and this integrated self has me plus we equals we. And with mui, it's basically how you bring love into the world. Mm, I love that. Mui, that's so beautiful. Thank you. This has been so insightful. There's been so many great relationship tips for romantic relationships, for other relationships, and for our relationship with our children. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't get to ask you? Well, you know, I think we're at a moment not just in our individual lives and trying to find love and clarity, you know, making sense of our own past. I think we're in a moment in humanity with the human family, with the disruption of the pandemic to really take stock and say, you know, what have we been doing? And I think what we need to do is move away from the modern cultural view of a separate, isolated, shrunken solo self. This view of the mind just coming from the brain or the self being only inside your body I think it's a fundamental, not just partial story or error, but it's actually a lethal lie. And when we take the self and say it's not just a me, but it's also a we and, and create that we, what happens, I think, is we have a pathway to having more loving connections, respectful connections to deal with social injustice and environmental destruction. Because what I think we've done is we've excessively differentiated the human species from other species, other living things, from nature. And in that excessive differentiation, we're blocking integration and we're destroying our home, planet Earth. So we is both a way to deal with your romances, your children. It's a way to actually reduce social injustice, including racism and caste systems. And it's a way to deal with environmental destruction. And I think together we can join together as a human family and make this a whole different world. Mm, absolutely. That's the goal, isn't it? Yeah. So you have been so great. This conversation has been super inspiring. You are helping so many people all around the world. I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back to you. How can we serve you today? Oh, that's so sweet. Well, just having this conversation is a great joy to, to have. Come to our website and there's a community, a MUI community that we're developing. Some people join in these meetings we have, various ways you can meet with other members of the MUI community and also become a part of this interpersonal neurobiology way of approaching integration as health. And so finding a way to bring that into your life, it would be a wonderful, wonderful way to be of service to the world. And that's really what we're about. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Dan, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom, for all your work and for sharing with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Melissa. It's an honor to be here with you. Guys, wasn't that awesome? So many nuggets of wisdom, so much to take away and think about. I got so much out of it. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a review on your podcast app because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. 
And speaking of review of the week, I want to read this week's review. And it's a five-star review titled, Thank You, from Mrs. R. Bug. And Mrs. R. Bug says, insightful, soul-nourishing, and feel-good episodes and guide you through life choices. Keep them coming, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mrs. Arbug, for that incredible five-star review. I'm so grateful. And as a little thank you for taking the time to leave that review, I want to gift you one of my top four favorite products. And this week, it is some blue blocking glasses from Blue Blocks from the Melissa range. How cool is that? All you have to do is email hello at melissarambrosini.com with your address and we'll send that over to you, my darling. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at melissarambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading them all. So please keep sharing them with me. And for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 384. And don't forget, my friends, to pre-order your copies of my upcoming book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy. Mm -mm -mm. Yes, please. And if you pre-order between now and May 4th, you can get all of my epic bonuses. So just head to comparisonitis.com for all the details. And now before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, Don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. 